Hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. It's early summer in Birmingham, England in 1832. The bustling textile factory has gone increasingly quiet around you. It's getting hard to see too. The light from the day having faded already, the sun hanging low in the sky, hiding behind the city skyline. Your hands are stiff and swollen and your lower back twinges as you fidget on the stool you've been perched on for the better part of 12 hours, fulfilling your duties as a spinner. Most of the other women have gone home, but several young men are still here, sweeping the day's work from the factory floor, as if it could be swept away. It lives as it has for the last four years in your bones. You feel the ache and groan of it in your back when you stand up at last, your supervisor calling it a night, finally. He doesn't have to tell you twice. The trek home isn't far, but it's far enough and you haven't seen your two children all day. The evening air is cool on your cheek when you step outside and you revel in the freedom from the factory's oppressive heat. You've lost count of the heat-related misfortunes, as your supervisor calls them, that have befallen other textile workers. You've been spared this fate, so far at least. As you walk, your mind wanders again to home. The truth is that this, right now, is probably the most comfortable you'll be all night. Trudging through the streets of Birmingham, the route so familiar you know every crack in the cobblestones. Because at home, the heat of the slum will be as unrelenting as the factories. And worse, you'll have to try and sleep in it. And listen to the complaints of your children only feet away from you in your cramped space squeezed on all sides by neighbors in their own overcrowded flats with one outdoor toilet to serve hundreds of you. In several neighboring blocks, disease blooms in staccato bursts, wiping out entire families. Home is hot, cramped, dirty. It's even lice-infested. You wonder what your supervisor's home is like. Better, no doubt. But at least your home, even with its utter lack of privacy, or perhaps in some ways because of it, you know you can count on the people in your building, on your cramped but loyal community to do their part, to lend a hand when needed, and more. And you'll always do the same. You're all the other has, after all. And you all understand perfectly what everyone else is going through at work and at home every day. You reach your building at last and approach the front door as you do each night, wary of the conditions that wait you inside, but really excited to spend some time with your children. For just a moment, you forget your anxiety about a life caught between two dangerous worlds of home and work. You see your kids and embrace them, unaware that roughly two centuries later, in an uncertain future, home and work will once again be totally redefined for a new generation. Hey there, I'm Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, 
the podcast that examines society through the lens of work over time and across cultures. Today, I'm joined by house historian Melanie Back Hansen, who's going to be whisking us to industrial age England. For this episode, we're doing something a little bit different. Typically, we explore work and its implications for history and culture by focusing on the day in the life of someone working a job. Today's episode is going to focus on the home life of a worker during the Industrial Revolution, when the organization and meaning of work shifted outside of the home in ways that profoundly impacted workers' domestic lives, especially when new mill and factory employers provided housing for their workers. During these days of quarantine, the concept of work-life balance seems to be getting more than its fair share of scrutiny and not a little bit of complaint. Today, we'll explore a time in which work and home became two very distinct things for a majority of people for the very first time, and in a time when city living conditions for the working class were less than ideal, to say the least. Okay, they were awful. Let's just say that your landlord definitely is not that bad. As always, fascinating stuff ahead. So let's dive in. I'm joined today by Melanie Back Hansen, who's an independent historian, writer, and speaker who specializes in researching the social history of houses throughout the United Kingdom. Melanie is a research consultant for BBC House History program, A House Through Time. And to accompany that TV series, Melanie co-wrote a book that's just been released. It's called A House Through Time, and she co-wrote it with historian David Olashugar. Previously, Melanie was a historical consultant and on-screen expert for Phil Spencer's TV series, History of Britain in 100 Homes. She's also the author of House Histories, the Secrets Behind Your Front Door, and Historic Streets and Squares, The Secrets on Your Doorstep. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and a member of the Royal Historical Society, and she's an honorary teaching fellow at the University of Dundee. Mel, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Today, we're going to explore the housing and home life of mill and factory workers in 19th century Britain within the broader context of the textile industry and how that changed from a cottage or domestic system to a factory system during the Industrial Revolution. So, Melanie, can you just give us a little context for our topic today? Well, in essence, um, the Industrial Revolutions have got going in the 17th century. Quick note. You just heard Mel say 17th century here. She really meant the 18th century. Those pesky century numbers, always slipping out of order. Um, very early stages, and then it really got going in the 18th century. So by the 19th century, what the period we're looking at, it was in full swing. Um, and it was, it revolutionized the nation um, and obviously had an impact across the world. So Britain became this thriving, industry um uh, nation i guess and the the area that we're looking at um is sort of in the north of england the midlands um it was just such a transformation from basically an agricultural largely rural uh, population 
And then all of a sudden, within a period of about 50 years, there was this massive transformation of factories, warehouses, canals, and, and business and industry that just transformed the nation. Yeah, it's just fascinating. I'm so excited to really dig into that subject. But first, I, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about how you work. What, I mean, what does it mean to do the social history of houses? It's all about the people. Um, and that's, that's what gets me fascinated. Um, so I think for many, many years, when people look at the history of housing or architecture, it is looking at the bricks and mortar. And, and for many years, there's many historians and, and experts who've looked at how the architecture of buildings has changed. And it often looks at the big, you know, stately homes and palaces and all that sort of thing. But I'm very much about um, looking at the social history of ordinary houses um, and it's the stories of people. So it's going right back to, you know, why the house was built and who lived there, who were the people, um, why, you know, who were the owners? Because actually at, at sort of prior to the 20th century, um, in Britain, most people rented. So it was only in the 20th century that that changed to sort of more owner-occupier. So um, historically speaking, most people rented. So you had a different owner and a different occupant of the house. Um, and it's, it's looking through their personal stories. So who were they? Who were the people that lived in the house? And unraveling their stories. And it's just that fascination of, you know, if you look at British houses, um, whether they're built in the 1930s or the 1630s, um, there's so much history to be found in understanding who the people were and the, the social stories of, uh, of the nation, but through the personal stories of individuals in a house. Yeah. Well, as an anthropologist, I'm absolutely fascinated by that as well. And I just would love to hear a little bit about what kind of sources you look at to reconstruct these lives within the bricks and mortar. When I research the history of a house, I often work backwards in time, which, oh, okay. which, which seems a bit weird to people. But actually, in order to get the right information earlier in the history um, you actually have to understand the later history so so working back you you have obviously more records in the 20th century into the 19th century and that's everything from tax records um, you know uh, census records there's electoral registers there's directories um, and then it, it starts to vary as the further you go back in time so there's there's fewer documents actually so the 19th century is brilliant because there was this mm you know, the Victorians were brilliant at record keeping. So that's <laughs> fantastic for a historian. Um, but as you get further back into the history of a house, you have to, you've got fewer pieces of the puzzle to work with. Um, so you're looking at, um, there's maps, uh, there's different types of tax records when there were changes in land ownership and land taxing. Um, and then there's deeds, um, which is essentially the legal documents related to the house. Um, but recent changes um, from about 1970 in England and Britain, um, they, it was no longer necessary to keep all the historic deeds for, for centuries effectively you needed to have your deeds to prove the ownership of your house but that changed in recent times and so there's been a lot of loss of of historic deeds yeah and what does that mean for the future studies uh, you know yeah it's going to be this this hole that begins and I, you know i'm fascinated when you describe the working backwards and it doesn't strike me at all as weird and as an archaeologist that's what we do you know but yeah, that's that that's partly because of the spatial um 
situation that we're faced in, in working with the ground mm-hmm. from the top down. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's working really from what you know to what you yes. don't know, it sounds like. Exactly, yeah. Uh, that, that's a key element, actually. And particularly because um, in a lot of the historic records, houses aren't actually clearly identified a lot of the time. So recent addresses that we think have probably been around for hundreds of years actually um, may have only been introduced uh, in the last 50 years prior to that it had a different number or it had a different house uh, house name or it had the street we had a different name so actually in order to make sure that you're looking at the right house back through the documents um, you have to sort of go backwards to see where those changes occur and actually in the early early history many houses aren't clearly identified at all it's just the house of you know farmer john who lived down you know Smith Street, you know, <laughs> so so actually, it's it's it can become a bit of a challenge, and and you become a real detective trying to make sure that you're looking at the right house and you're following the right occupants and owners, and yeah, but that's part of the fun of it actually, because you you it's a challenge, but it's you're becoming a detective, so it's great. Oh, that's exactly how it sounds. I mean, it sounds like you end up with multiple puzzles going, none of which yeah. have a picture to guide you. <laughs> But then, well, you know, it's great though because then you get lost in the stories and you find, you know, the, the yeah. family that lived there for generations, and you you get to know the family and who they were and who they married and who their kids were, and so it becomes fascinating. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like it. Well, with that, that's a perfect segue to get us into the meat of our topic, which is, I'd, I'd just love for you to um, sketch for us a picture of you know, a hypothetical house or even an actual house, if you happen to have something in mind from your research and what you might tell us about the home life of the typical working class family that might've occupied that house during this time. Yeah. um, Well, actually, to be honest, it's actually quite tricky to come up with an atypical house because they varied enormously. So, um, and that's in the sense of how they were lived in. Um, again, if you're looking at if you're looking at the structure itself, you know, so a typical house um, in a lot of areas, particularly the well, actually across the country, really. But if we're looking at the Midlands in the north of England, um, the classic two up, two down, two rooms downstairs and two rooms upstairs. Um, that's a very typical um, 19th century style of housing. Um, and that could be made in stone or brick, but predominantly brick in a lot of areas that we're looking at. Um, but the key is that if you had a sort of fairly comfortable income or there was, you know, you, perhaps the, the man of the house had a steady job and actually the, the woman of the house took perhaps took in a bit of work and but the kids also work. So actually, if you had a fairly OK income, then you could live in that house as a single family and you could afford okay food you know like you're able to feed your family Mm -hmm. you could have coal for the fire um and so that was fairly comfortable in a lot of ways but in this period we get a lot of um a lot of living in houses which is completely different um so you could look from the outside you could look well it's a comfortable two up two down but actually it turns out that there's several family families living in that house. So it gets to the point where actually each room is occupied by a different family. Oh, um, so wow. you've got massive overcrowding. You've got very, very little in the way of um, heating light. You know, like there's, there's, you know, if you think about the sort of cramped conditions, um, there's 
pollution and smoke in the air from the factories and the mills. Um, and then you've got, uh, yeah, you've got limited food to feed your family. So actually it's, there's all these different variations within a typical house. So it's, I mean, that in a way that makes it interesting, but it's, but it's very difficult to be precise about a, an atypical house. Um, okay, but then it. that leads us into, you know, how people lived in houses during the industrial revolution. So, um, and yeah, it's, it, it goes from, as I say, comfortable to absolutely diabolical, like, yeah, it, it, un, unimaginable living conditions that we 21st century, we just can't, can't picture or, or even believe in some ways. Right. Well, and, you know, as you were um, vividly setting up what this might have been like to live in a two up, two down with multiple other families, I, I'm just trying to imagine the lack of privacy and, and how family oh, yeah. life would have been really impacted by that or family life the way we think about it in terms of, you know, kind of small ish nuclear families in the mm. 21st century. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. If you think of, you know, there's there's no contraception at this time. You know, people had much larger families. So you've got a husband and wife, but you could have had six, eight, ten children. People who looked at these poorer working class families, sort of the upper classes or those sort of above, would look down on them and judge them for their morality because they were seen oh. as immoral because they shared beds and they shared rooms. It's like, how, how could oh, you possibly... Oh, what a double standard. <laughs> exactly. You know, but of course they were forced into these situations because they had no yeah. money and that was the only accommodation they had. So, so and it was... It, you know, from the upper classes, it was deemed as their own fault. If you, if you were forced into that situation, right. it was because your immoral behavior. And it was, a, you know, if you wanted to be prosperous, you had to work for it. So if you weren't prosperous, it meant you, it was your own fault and you weren't working hard enough. So, so it, yeah, double standard wow. doesn't even come close. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I'd like to chase down that thought you just raised, Mel, about this idea that, well, if you weren't prosperous, you weren't working hard enough, it was your own fault. What were the work options available to these people at this time? Yeah, well, um, a lot of the people were not forced, but a lot of them chose to move to these massively expanding cities and um, so we're talking places like Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, Nottingham, um, a lot of the, the northern towns, midland towns and they were forced there um, or they chose to go there because of higher wages so they were moving from the countryside where there was an agricultural depression, um, actually there was the improvements in mechanization had actually meant there were fewer jobs for laborers and farmers and farm workers. So, Oh, it makes to, sense. So, so that yeah. mechanization effect, not just industry, but also the agrarian economy. Exactly. So okay. yeah, it was easier for, for a landowner to, to get the same result with fewer people. So, so there were an increasingly large number of unemployed agricultural workers and they went to the cities to, to get work but also to get higher wages because actually they were fairly well paid um, compared to an agricultural worker but it was just the living conditions and then you know the, the family situation you know if you've got several children and all sorts um, but it was yeah that was why they moved into these these jobs and that could be working in the mill um, and that varied the way that the the system was set up it was divided into separate jobs. So you had the men uh, doing harder 
work, which actually required more muscle effectively, um, but they were, they were better paid. Um, and then it was broken down into work for women and then work for children. And that's also a key element of, of the factory system where children were heavily employed. Um, and they were, because they were small and nimble, they could make their way through the machines and, uh, I mean, health and safety just doesn't, it doesn't even come close, you know, and actually, you know, people died, they died in these machines because it was, you know, you've got this, the noise was absolutely incredible. And actually to the point that um, many of the workers learned to lip read because they just couldn't hear each other speak. Oh. So like the only way you could communicate was to, to lip read. Um, and yeah, you've got children taking on these very dangerous um jobs and women as well and you've got women wearing large skirts and and petticoats in in and amongst the, the machines doesn't sound like that blends well with moving parts <laughs> no, no it really doesn't so um but you know if there was a stability then it was a fairly okay job a fairly um comfortable job uh it's just it only got more troublesome if you had obviously several children you've got to try and look after the children and the mother's right. got to be at home and then you've got all those complications and there's there's lots of reports about um again the the morality judgments of a working woman who leaves her baby and even only, then so that's nothing new yeah. under the sun <laughs> yeah yeah so in terms of you know breastfeeding and and the challenges of looking after a baby um and if you're if you're abandoning that you know you're you're no longer worthy to be a woman because you're abandoning your child to go and work and so there's all sorts of judgments that were involved there as well oh yeah you just can't win no <laughs> So let's go back to one of these homes. We can imagine a two up, two down, if you like, or really anything you'd, you'd prefer. Mel, can we try to get into the head of one of these families? They're waking up for, for their new day. What's, what's on their mind and what are they thinking about? What do they need to, to take care of that day? Yeah, it's a tricky one. And I think it's quite difficult um, for us in the 21st century to picture that life um it was around uh food work and support and providing for your family like there's just mm -hmm. you know they're pretty basic obviously <laughs> yeah it was pretty basic and i think in a lot of cases there was just a constant struggle there you know it wasn't there was no free time you know you might have had a half a sunday off or something but that was provided for church you had you had to go to church oh, okay. um and uh so there was there was very little in, there was no spare time. Like you, you literally got up, you, if you had food, you were able to provide for your family. Um, if the, the woman was at home, then, then she could perhaps, you know, she would look after the family um, and perhaps take in extra work, perhaps do washing at, at a small, you know, in, income that was extra to the husband. Um, but on the whole, also the children went out to work as well. Um, and actually so much so that when they brought in the factory acts, which was to limit the time a child could work and they were making improvements, they were trying to better the life of children, but actually it meant that some families had less income. So a lot of them oh, resisted of this because they needed the income from the children to provide enough for the family. So there's, there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of things going on, but it was so centered around survival in, in many ways. Yeah. And I, I can't help but wonder, you know, you mentioned how in this time period, um, we had seen a big influx of 
people who had come from agrarian areas to, to move into the cities to take these higher paying jobs, um, despite all of the drawbacks of, of what mm. it meant for their domestic life, basically. Yeah. Um, it must have been a really different thing to have to yes. worry about food when you yeah. don't have a farm right outside or even like a yeah. vegetable plot. So where did they yeah. get their food, these well, poor city workers? A lot of them, you know, they've got street sellers. You do have, oh, okay. you know, you've got, um, there's sort of the shop system. Obviously you had a trade and, and shops, uh, shopkeepers, but it obviously depended if you were just looking for the bare necessities. Um, but a lot of them were, were street sellers and you, you would get your food and it's some degree in a, in a way that we would today, but just broken down into, you know, the fruit seller to the cheese seller to the milk seller, you know, just, it was all by different people. So, um, yeah, that's that's and obviously if you had a limited income, you could only get the cheapest food. So just yeah, on well, and limited you, yeah. amount, limited variety. It, you know, it's just a little different yes. from saying, well, okay, we can just keep some chickens and a pig out front and grow some carrots. Yeah, well, actually, a lot of them did try and do that. You know, for many oh, really? years. You know, like in the back, if you had a yard at the back, you could not only did you have the privy, which is the toilet, um, which is not a flushing toilet that we would understand um but it was literally a seat over a hole um and that, <laughs> so there's that in the backyard the only yard you had it was very practical it was literally the privy in the back um and in some cases many people had to share privies so you didn't have your own one for your own family oh well uh, yeah why would you have your own pri oh yuck <laughs> <laughs> i know and that's another trouble you know with the housing that that comes into to the fore where actually yeah more and more houses were built um and they didn't make allowances for privies so they would build a row of houses but then have a couple of privies to provide for that entire row of houses so it yeah it, the, the sanitation and sewage um clearance system was terrible like it's actually one of the key elements of the housing at this time um, but a lot of the, as I started to say, the agriculture workers, they come from the country and they'd have a pig or they'd have a couple of chickens or usually pig in the backyard. Um, but this then provi provided more mess. And, I was going to say you know, with this crowded yeah, multifamily yeah. place with random pigs running around yep. and oh my goodness. Yeah. So, so it got to the point that actually, um, you know, people, the, the builders or, or the person leasing the house would make provision of no no animals allowed but then that meant the family had fewer options for for providing for their family so it just yeah that's that's another challenge they had oh yeah and how did people find housing was there some kind of social network that linked people of this this class or yeah it certainly work. wasn't by estate agents like <laughs> i didn't think today. so <laughs> <laughs> um no and actually in a lot of cases the the housing um was provided near to their place of work so that was oh, another okay. key element so mm. it, you know the these the idea of uh, transport was was non-existent you had to be within walking distance of your place of work um right. So, uh, and a lot of, a lot of the actual mill owners or factory owners, um, they provided the housing. So the landlord was actually also the mill owner. So actually, um, but yeah, and also people came and went and moved very regularly. As I said, like not most people rented. Um, and in this poorer type of housing, um, you wouldn't have a long standing lease. You would actually, in many, most cases, you would have a, a lease for a week. A week? Um, yeah 
So and did it get extended week by week? Depending yeah, on I mean, that's, yeah. So hopefully if you paid your rent at the end of the week, then you're okay. Yeah. Oh, but then you get all so sorts of stories of people, you know, running out in the middle of the night, you know, the, before rent was due because they couldn't oh. pay their rent. So they would, you know, there's, there's all that sort of thing going on. Um, but yeah, it meant that uh, you, yeah, you could stay in the same place for a period of time. You could, but if you had a bit more, you, you earned a bit more money, you could perhaps move to a slightly better place or, but it was often all in the same area. So um, there's records of, of families um, between the census record, which was actually every 10 years. So people moved an, an enormous amount in that time. Oh, I can imagine. Um, but they were often just found the next street over in the next census or, you know, so they've only ever really moved because if they're working in the same place, they still need to be close to work. So sure. a lot of the same families, um, and this is where you actually sort of get that community feeling, you know, even though um, the, the struggles were real, like, as I say, you can't even imagine, but the, the people living in these communities built up um, a, a relationship and that was important to them. So, um, and whether you actually had to leave your child in, in the hands of a neighbor, for example, which is very common, or, um, you know, you've got say, the same families living there for generations. So you've got, you know, all the all the connected, you know, your uncle and aunt are two doors down and your grandparents are the street over. And so there's a community feel there as well. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Actually, you know, it makes me think of the block where all the, the moms with the young kids take turns with the child minding and the carpools and things like that today, you know, in a sort of idealized notion of American suburbs, at least, because that's right. sort of the context that I'm most familiar with. But, uh, how powerful were those social networks that these workers who really struggled in so many ways in their lives? As, as far as I, I understand, I think they were very strong. Um, and it's obviously none were perfect, but, you know, and you probably had the, many cases of it not being ideal. But at the same time, um, it was very strong. So much so that actually when the, the slum clearances came largely in the 20th century, um, although they, they started to clear this um, poor housing even by the late 19th century. Um, but particularly in the 20th century, where people were then given the option of moving into better housing, you know, it might have had internal plumbing, or it might have had, you know, a, a, a more space, or it had sort of better facilities. But in a lot of cases, they were moved out of their community. The, the neighbours who had, you know, the, the women of the house who would be hanging out there washing in the backyard and chatting to the neighbours, that was lost. And actually, it was one of the reasons why, um, one of many reasons that was um, put forward as a failure for the 20th century housing, because they removed that community feeling, they took it, they stripped it away, because people were housed all over the place. Yeah, it's really interesting to see some of these uh, unintended consequences of, of good doing, right? I mean, the yeah. do-gooder impulse yeah. to improve life for people. And what was behind, uh, this may not be something that you know much about, but if so, um, you know, what, what was behind this movement to clear out these, these quote-unquote slums? In essence, it was because the housing was just so deplorable that actually it was... Um, it, it was seen unfit for human habitation. Um, that was one of the reasons. There were other reasons sort of earlier in the, in the 19th century where railways particularly were being built. 
Um, and in a lot of cases, they were literally being built right through the middle of the town or a city. Okay, um, so these places so were they, inconveniently in the way in that. Exactly, case. yeah. But that then provoked also more problems because quite, you know, at that time, people weren't provided with alternative housing. They were just forced into the other slums areas in, in nearby um, areas. So, you know, it didn't, it didn't help the slums, if you know what I mean. So it's certainly yeah. that kind of um, development. And that happened all over the country. You know, if it was perhaps um, building new roads or, or changing, um, developing an area or build, building a nice new block of, of municipal buildings or whatever. But actually, if you knock down the slums, those people had, had were forced to find accommodation elsewhere. And often that was just in another slum somewhere else. Right, right. It's just shifting, yeah. shifting from one yeah. place to the yeah. next. So yeah, it was only by the 20th century that that changed, and actually, you, you, there was an introduction of um, what we would call social housing or local authority housing, which was in order to provide better housing purely for the for the sake of providing better housing, and that that was the main reason behind it. So particularly after the First World War. Um, but it, it, it started earlier than that, but it really kicked off after the First World War, which um, highlighted some of the issues in inappropriate and inadequate housing. Um, and it was after that that, that you know, different um, government came in and introduced different legislation that provided a, a massive turnaround in how housing was provided. So, Mel, we've talked quite a bit about the two up, two down housing structure. Were there any other forms of housing that were commonly occupied by workers at this time? Yes, yes, there were. Um, and actually, it's interesting because different cities developed their own um, sort of nuances um, of different kinds of housing. Um, but particularly in the northern uh, counties, the northern part of England, these speculative builders, because actually at this point, there was no sort of organized way of building houses. It was just small speculative building. And they in essence, just tried to build whatever they could on the space they had. Um, and quite often, in order to make the most profit, they would try and squeeze in as many houses as That's possible. That's so funny. Again, it's just yeah. similar to, to you hear about the spec. Yeah, I know. It's basically oh, what happens now. But <laughs> wow. Yeah. But in those days, there were no building regulations. There was no mm. planning applications. There was nothing to sort of determine a certain level of quality. Um, and so this is where you get actually terrible standards of building construction um and also to make you know to make the most profit they quite often would do it quickly and cheaply and so the standard of the the house was often terrible um well that never happens today (laughs) (laughs) that's true yeah so um but it just it also meant that they came up with had creative ideas about how to squeeze in as many houses as possible oh, okay. um, and if we look back now it's terrible but actually at the time it sort of made sense to them um, but there was a type of housing called back-to-back um, and this was essentially two houses built back-to-back um, so there was no rear window and no rear door uh, so many of these back-to-back houses were built in a terrace. So you also had no light or coming from either side of the house. So it was only coming from the front, and that was the only entrance. Um, so in terms of airflow, in terms of 
you know, all sorts of provision in terms of having a backyard. There was nothing like that. Um, and they were often only run one room deep. So you had one room on the first, the ground floor and one room above. So you literally got two rooms, one above the other. I mean, sometimes there was a third story, but ultimately you just got one room on the ground and one room above. Um, and that was a very popular type of housing because it, it, it was you were able to build it cheaper than a full two up two down um so so if you had a row of terraces built back to back um the front house would face the street and the rear house would face a courtyard behind and in order to get to those houses you had to go through a tunnel from the street a tunnel underground uh, tunnel no 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 through in between the houses oh okay <laughs> yeah but so the first floor was above you know so it was a covered tunnel if you know what I mean. it wasn't like a whole gap um and then at that in the rear it was an enclosed space and that's where the privies were so it I, it always astonishes me that actually if you were in the front facing house if you wanted to go and use the loo you would have had to come out of your front door go along the street to the tunnel access back behind into the courtyard and then you'd have your privy at the back so you know there was no quick go down to the loo you know it was it was a very different you know um and again this is privies which are um literally seats over a hole or what was called a cesspit um which was often not emptied it had to be manually emptied and this is where you get night soil men and they had to literally empty the cesspit and so if you were in a fairly you know, affluent area. Um, this was this was often the only way of of a sanitary arrangement. But if you were in an affluent area, it was be, it would be cleared regularly and actually be okay most of the time. But in these sorts of areas, they were very rarely cleared properly, and they were shared amongst the whole area. So again, there's a, an astonishing um, statistic that in 1835 um there was a record in manchester that one privy was provided for 350 people what i know i, I the amount of times i've read that statistic and thought it can't possibly be true but uh, i've seen it in several several references um you can't escape so, yeah. the odors that would result no. and, and it just meant actually you literally there's stories of literally the courtyard and the streets in front were layered with with sewage and and effluence right there in the street. you had to dodge you walk down the street you had to dodge the puddle um and then on top of this you also had um cellars and they were also provided as separate accommodation so you often were um a rented space in a cellar dwelling is what they came to be known um and it could be one or two rooms and you had families living in these spaces but if they were the poorest of the poor um you you shared as well so you had several families or you might have had one big family and then different lodges um so the living conditions were um were abhorrent you know were just so bad um and there's there's variations again in all these different types of dwellings but and as i say from the two up two down where you have a fairly comfortable income it's sounding downright luxurious at this point yes, now i'm exactly. not gonna lie yeah <laughs> i know because often when we look at them now you know two up two downs are seen as like sort of poor cottages but actually they were fairly comfortable arrangements compared to cellar dwellings or back-to-backs you know so yeah it's um it, the the living conditions were awful um and again you had streets squeezed in amongst small streets and then in the shadow of factories and warehouses and so there was 
pollution, the smells from the factory, from the, the dyers and all the other industry going on. Then you had the smell of the sewage and the streets. You know, it's, it's an extraordinary picture of what life could have, you know, was like for, for people in those situations. Oh, yeah, the sensory impressions are incredible. Sight, sound, smell, you name it. It was also at a time, actually, that, that um, there was so little light. You know, you've got no street lighting. And so actually when it was, you know, when it was dark, it was pitch dark. Um, and there was very little. You could um, have a small amount of lighting in your small space, but it was very limited. It's not like the electric light we have now. Um, but also there were different taxes in place. It, up until the 1850s, there was a tax on bricks and there was a tax on windows. So, so there was a limit as well in that case. So, you know, builders... Because it, it cost you extra money to have windows. Yes, in other you words. would pay an extra tax on, on the certain number of windows. Um, that, that was abolished um, in 1851. Um, and so you get all sorts of architectural changes after that. But for these sort of poorer class of housing, it also meant that they limited the number of windows. So they didn't, you know, didn't have to provide. Or the, also the bricks were only one brick um, wide the house the walls were only one brick wide because it, they didn't want to use too many bricks um so yeah there's all sorts of um elements to how this housing became as bad as it did it's sort of tempting to imagine these poor exhausted quite exploited factory workers having a, a sanctuary to come home to but it sounds like yeah it's kind of um makes work not so awful sounding in some respects at least there would have been light and 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 some sort of uh, ventilation to allow all of the machinery to be operated safely yeah yeah i mean there's all sorts of challenges with that as well because the the the, the dust flying around from the cotton um also caused all sorts of health conditions and, and problems um but the working in the in the mills for example they they did a 12 or 13 hour day so they were getting up at sort of five in the morning, getting to work at six, you know, or, or some days, some cases starting at five, starting at six. And they were literally there all day and they'd come at, back when it's dark and have a little bit of food and start all over again the next day. You know, it's, it wasn't the best of lives. I'm just struck by how unhealthful every venue of these people's lives sound, you know, talking to you about what it was like in the mill with all the dust and the noise and, and the mm. in the air. And then of course the really unhealthful sanitation situations at home. What, yeah. what were the health impacts for these people? Oh. Do we know? Yeah, no, uh, uh, well, <laughs> absolutely horrible, but uh, basically there was so much disease around at this time obviously this is you know before vaccines and all sorts but also there was a misunderstanding about the spread of disease so um the probably the worst thing is there were many epidemics um in the 19th century um that includes cholera um and there was several periods of time in the 1830s 1840s 1850s each de decade had another epidemic of of cholera or typhoid or typhus or um all sorts of things um and there was this was at a time when they believed that the disease was spread in the air. These cesspits would, you know, seep into the groundwater and then they would go to the nearby pump and that was their only access to water oh. and drink that water, which was full of disease and full of um, all sorts of things. So, and that was often, that was 
how it spread so badly. So if you've got this massive overcrowding, lack of sanitation, lack of water supply, and you've got this perfect storm of, of disease spreading. Um, yeah, and that sounds like it would just tear through these, these crowded housing blocks. And it did. It did. Yeah. And that was it. So, and on top of that, you also had um, the, the other types of disease. So you've got tuberculosis and you've got all sorts of other um, malnutrition and, you know, the, the child mortality rates were horrendous. So disease was a very real thing to deal with every day and whether that was the impact of your working environment and the the breathing in of the dust um, caused all sorts of trouble um, and the, the the air was was thick with the cotton and and or, or whatever or it was in um, another kind of industrial environment where it was literally poisonous so you were breathing in poison um, and so uh, there's that going on at work but then at home you know, it's it's not the comfortable domestic environment that we imagine our homes to be now. It was it was a survival, and you you got by, but you were constantly in that realm of of threat of disease, um, and it was very real for those people. I am a very optimistic person. That this is not. Yeah the kind of environment, uh, I, I, I say this very infrequently, but I don't think I'd like to hop in a time machine back to this place. Not if you were poor and, and forced <sighs> into this kind of working environment and living environment, like it just, yeah. Um, I mean, it was only, they, they brought in slowly um, a number of, of legislative acts and, and they brought in, there were health acts, um, but because each town and city and area was sort of governed by the local authority, um, you know, if an act was produced in, in Westminster in, in the government, a lot of the time it was a recommendation. So oh. actually it took years and decades for a lot of local authorities to change because it costs money actually to provide better sanitation or provide better housing. Yeah, it huge money. money. I mean, it's yeah. re revamping the entire domestic setup. Yes, exactly. And that's it. It took decades, you know, and, and so actually from the late 18th century when there was this huge population rise in the cities and we moved from a largely agricultural community into an urban um, living environment the 19th century was just an explosion of urban living but it was from that 18th century change some of these legislative changes in building and um, provision of spaces within the house certain provisions for water or sanitation often it was only produced later in the 19th century so you actually had several generations of families who lived in these terrible conditions before any change was brought in yeah and was there any possibility of upward mobility for these people? I mean, either in terms of kind of what we think about career, you know, could they move up from whatever job they started out in as a mill worker, um, you know, and, and, and as, as such afford better and more healthful housing for their family at some point? Um, I think it would, would it, it's fairly limited. I think certainly if we think about yeah, career pro progress or social mobility as we would see it today, it, there was very limited options for that. So you might be able to be in a position if you're an apprentice and you're starting at the lowest of the low, but perhaps you're learning a specific trade um, or a very specific skill, then you might be able to work up into sort of a more senior or experienced role within that. Um, but in a lot of cases, especially for women, you know, that was, you're either a washerwoman, you're, you know, doing laundry, uh, you're working in the factory or, or a mill, you know, 
but often you couldn't move up like and actually the only way of moving up would have been to take a role from a man and that wasn't acceptable I was gonna say that probably is not exactly the easiest thing to maneuver and I, yeah I, I was reading about the fact that there were certain roles which um, later became purely dominated by men but earlier in the industrial revolution there were some women doing those roles different sort of skills of spinning and and uh, so such and such with the the the, the mills um, and cotton and wool and it got to the point where actually the men were attacking women um, because they didn't want to take them to take their jobs so it was just it was just seen as impossible like it was just you know um, it yeah that as a woman that was not an option and for a start also women were meant to be at home raising a child and or children and keeping home for their husband um, despite the fact that they were often forced into work because they they needed that extra income for their family it sounds like a strong sense of stoicism was needed to just get through your day. Yeah, I actually, you know, I read some of these accounts and statistics and you just, you just, and you see some of the pictures as well and you just, I can't, you actually can't imagine it. It, it just would have been of such a tough life. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this makes me think as we're all sitting here and conducting this conversation over Zoom, because we are still mm. in various stages of lockdown due, due to coronavirus in both the US and the UK. And it's been such a topic at the top of, of mind, yeah. I, I think, in the press for both countries, this work home dynamic and the balance or lack thereof. And I, I don't know, this makes yeah. me feel like however bad we think we've got it now there's just no comparison <laughs> no no I did yeah that's it I mean it's it's funny I've heard a few people say that as you say it's been in the in the press about or you know commentators looking at how our lives are changing through lockdown um, and it is that idea that actually we can look at this differently largely through technology you know there's I've seen a few sort of joke thing goes going around on Facebook and other you know Twitter and whatnot about if this was even 20 years ago we wouldn't have been able to survive lockdown because we didn't have the we didn't have zoom and we didn't have the internet we didn't have streaming well it would have been, we might have survived but it would have been so different oh yeah it's unfathomable yes. yeah exactly you literally at that point could make phone calls and you could text on your phone and that's what you know so right. you know we can obviously cope far better now but it's interesting because people are evaluating their their home space um and that has brought up a lot of conversations about how we yeah how we share our work and living environment so there's it's interesting because a lot of people are commenting on the fact that in 20 maybe 50 years time this period will be marked as a transitional historic moment for many many reasons obviously for the pandemic alone but in terms of how we approach housing and living environments and and perhaps is a, a, a change in the way that we uh, work we're no longer going to be going into offices like we perhaps you know right. were so used to right. before so there's, there's a shift and a change. And you know, if we're going to look back in time, there's, yeah, a lot of people already saying that this is going to be a pivotal moment. Absolutely. Wow. Mel, <laughs> this has been such a fantastic conversation ranging through the really tenuous existence of these 19th century factory and mill workers in Britain. Um, but I, I love how you also presented to us 
what, okay, well, we're not going to call it a silver lining, but there were certain benefits to them living in these communities cheek to jowl. You know, there was a, a sense of cohesion and mutual support, which, you know, it's an interesting thing to kind of mm. look at, well, what happens to that when we actually make life better for these people? And of course, we're considering all of these questions about what it means to juggle work and home in the days of coronavirus in a way we you know, haven't really had to before. So thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you, it's been great, loved it. If putting in 12 to 14 hour days, six and a half days a week, doing dull back-breaking labor in loud and dusty conditions wasn't demoralizing enough, Industrial age mill and factory workers faced equally grim conditions in their far from tranquil homes, which they rarely even saw during daylight hours. Learning a bit more about the grim contours of these workers' domestic lives, I'm seriously impressed and, and I have to say touched by the fortitude and dare I say optimism these people would have needed just to get through their unrelentingly hard scrabble lives, which seemed to offer so little by way of relaxation or hope for a better tomorrow. In more ways than one, these workers were real heroes of their time, serving on the front lines of the epic social and economic shifts of Britain's industrial revolution. And they did it just by putting one foot in front of the other each and every long, hard day, seizing whatever chance they could to provide the best possible quality of life for themselves and their families in a time and place which afforded them precious few options. Options that thankfully, many now have in the modern age, perhaps making our challenges in 2020 seem far less inconvenient and certainly less insurmountable. Follow today's guest at House Historian on Twitter, at Mel Backhansen on Instagram, and check out our website at house-historian.co.uk. You can catch Mel's latest book, A House Through Time, on Amazon. As always, thanks for listening. Working Overtime is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on Instagram at Working Overtime Series. Thanks for listening, and remember to like and subscribe.